0: Thank you for joining us online at Hauser Community Church. Directly after the message, we'll tell you how to contact us if you have any questions. Now let's join the speaker as he
1: begins his sermon. ...dition apart from Christ. It tells us that we are dead in sins and trespasses. It reveals that we're saved by grace and grace alone, nothing else. But it also reveals... How we should be living because we have received that grace. Romans is an explanation of all the things or a lot of the things that Jesus has done for us. And then finally at the end of that, at the end of the first 11 chapters, he stops long enough to do something that is the only logical thing to do. He bursts forth into praise. Praise. His understanding of those things of God that he's been explaining in the first 11 chapters are so thrilling to him that he bursts forth into praise. He can't help it. His understanding of the things of God cause him to worship God. Listen to what he says here. He says, "Oh, what a wonderful God we have. How great are his riches and his wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand His decisions and his methods. For who can know what the Lord is thinking? Who knows enough to be his counselor? And who could ever give him so much that he would have to pay it back? For everything comes from him. Everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Someone said his theology, his understanding of the things of God, produces doxology, that is the worship of God. And that conclusion at the end of chapter 11 is important because that's really the introduction to the verses that we're looking at this morning. It takes us right into Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which I'm going to read now out of the English Standard Version, which is your Pew Bible Version. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. By the way, women, it's brothers and sisters. It's not just the brothers. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. So, in those two verses, we see three things we see what is expected of us as believers why we should be doing what is expected of us, and then finally we see how we're to go about doing that. And after we understand these verses, our lives should really never be the same. We cannot really hear what Paul has to say here and then just disregard his teaching and ignore it and then really consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. Once we become Christians, everything changes, is supposed to change in your life. Yes, it will be gradual, believe me. I know that probably better than anyone. I'm one of the slowest learners of all. It's very gradual sometimes. But if your life isn't changing or does not change, there's something you have not understood. You haven't grasped the gospel, or it hasn't grasped you because it changes everything. And the first thing we see here in verse 1 is what we are to do, what we are called to offer to God. We're called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Author and pastor Richard Halverson, he was the chaplain to the United States Senate back in the 1980s and 1990s. And one time he was telling the story of a, a conference where he was at. He was closed a message where he was talking about giving our bodies as the uh, presenting our bodies being as they are the temple of the holy spirit and as he closed that message he invited anyone who wanted to present their bodies as a living sacrifice to stand he said the first person to stand was a lovely elderly woman who graciously arose quickly and was soon followed by several others after the service he made his way to this woman and he asked her why she had been so quick to rise. She said, Dick, I'm 88 years old. I've been a church member all of my life, but I never knew until tonight that God wanted my body, and I stood quickly because I don't have very much time left. And none of us in this room know how much time we have left, do we? Maybe far less than we think. But for right now, in this part of the verse, what we need to see, that this is an urgent appeal from Paul, from God through Paul. An appeal that I think at least borders on a command. It's certainly more than a suggestion. If you're a Christian, you're called to present your body to God as a living sacrifice. You're just to give it back to him. Somebody said the problem with living sacrifice is that uh, all too often, what do we do? We get up and off the altar, don't we? And I think the Apostle Paul could relate to that because he explains back in chapter 7 of Romans, he says, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. Anybody else experience that? About 24-7, except when I'm sleeping, maybe. Then I do what my wife doesn't want me to do, snore and things like that. We live all the way, all all our lives seems to be like that. But Paul can relate to us. Paul's like that himself. He says that. I think what he's doing there is he's explaining that he is there with us in our experience of trying to live for God. He's not trying to give us some pie-in-the-sky theology. He's saying this is real life. This is how I live it, but this is what we need to be doing. He understands that we need to be living for God right here, right now giving ourselves to him now and committing ourselves to him for the rest of our lives because this life is the arena where we live out our faith. We're to be like those early Christians who allowed themselves to be eaten alive by lions as entertainment for the godless rather than to deny Jesus Christ. And those early Christians were not always men and women. Sometimes they were just children. By faith, though, they understood that this life is not the only life, and nor is it the most important life. They didn't know or care about things like bucket lists like we have today. Their bucket list was comprised of the glories of heaven and the comfort of Jesus. And they became, like Jesus himself, living sacrifices. They didn't consider themselves too good or too important to give their lives to God. So this appeal in verse 1 to present ourselves is for all Christians, all people. Everyone, if you're a believer here this morning, it's for you. It's not just for the priests or the pastors or the elders or the Sunday school teachers or the missionaries. It doesn't matter who you are, how rich you are, how poor you are, how old you are, how young you are. If you're famous or infamous or unfamous, it doesn't matter. God expects the same offering from each and every one of us. If you've been saved, he's calling on you to offer your body back to him. A living sacrifice. That's what we're called to do in verse 1. The second thing that we see in verse 1 is why we should be doing this. Why should we offer our bodies back to God? And Paul gives us here two main reasons that we as Christians should be offering ourselves, our bodies, back to God. And the first reason is because of all that God has done for us. Now, that's expressed different ways in different translations. If you have the King James or the ESV, it says, by the mercies of God. If you have the New International Version, it says, in view of God's mercy. The New Living Translation explains it this way. It says, because of all that God has done for you, give yourself back to God. In other words, just to begin with, in part, because of all those things you would have read if you had read through the first 11 chapters of Romans, All those things that God has done for us are reason for us to give ourselves back to him. Those things caused him to beseech us or to appeal to us, to implore us, to give ourselves back to God. So if we were to turn back to Romans chapter 8, you would see just a few things there that he's done for us. In verses 28 through 30, I'll read them. You're welcome to follow along or just listen. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him and he gave them right standing with himself and he promised them his glory. He chose us before we were even created. He called us. He reconciled us to himself. He makes everything to work together for our good. And if that was all that we could say, that would be enough to merit our eternal service back to God. But that's just a few things and a few verses You could read through and saturate yourselves with the first 11 chapters there and you'd find a lot more. And then you could finish the book of Romans. Then you could read the rest of the Bible. And then you could say, oh, what has he done in my life personally? Then you could look at creation around you and see all the good things he's given you. Then you could look at the lies of others. And when we do all that, is that not reason enough to give ourselves back to God fully? We owe him everything. Remember the story of Pinocchio? Geppetto is a poor Italian woodcarver, and he wanted a son so bad that he carved a wooden puppet and he named it Pinocchio. And he really wished that Pinocchio could become a real boy. And as a result of his wish, a fairy visits him, visits the workshop, and brings Pinocchio to life. But Pinocchio is still wood, he's not flesh and blood. Now, if you want to read the rest of the story, that's fine. Not here, please. Read it at home. Think about it. There's a lot of interesting spiritual parallels there because the author of that book was a theologian. He went to seminary. I don't know how much he learned there, but he was a theologian. But for right now, we just want to see one thing out of that story. If Geppetto had not made Pinocchio, Pinocchio would never even have existed. He might have ended up being a piece of firewood or a piece of furniture. Pinocchio owed his very existence to Geppetto. Everything. He should have been grateful. He should have worked at, worshipped Geppetto with every splinter of his being. He should have gone, not gone off from school. He should have gone to school and not ran off. He should have done everything in the world to please the one who carved him because if he hadn't, Pinocchio wouldn't even have existed. And in the same way... You and I owe our God everything, because without Him, we would not exist. If He hadn't created our first parents out of the dust of the earth, we wouldn't be here. And God only wants the very best for each one of us as well. He's provided everything we need for this life and the life to come. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have hard times. Does't mean we're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean that we might not be persecuted. What it does mean is those Christ, that we as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, like those early Christians, to carry us through our trials. So it's because of all these things that God has done for us that we're to wish, worship him by giving our bodies back to him as living sacrifices. Now, Paul gives us a second reason in that same verse as well. In verse 1, he says, because this is acceptable to God as worship. That's a good reason. It's acceptable to God that we you and I give ourselves back to Him. Charles Spurgeon reminds us that God never accepted dead sacrifices in the Old Testament. Animal sacrifices had to be alive. And then they had to be put to death. That's what made them a sacrifice. And when people brought those Old Testament sacrifices, they were to be the best of the flock. They were not to be just any old sacrifice that they chose. If you look at the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, verses 8 and 9, God is speaking to the people there. He says, when you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? he says try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how they are like how they are pleased with that says the lord almighty you and i who have been born again we've been given new life and now we are to give that life back to god the gospel of jesus christ in our age is a lot of times distorted sometimes it seems that Few people seem to really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, his church would be packed out. The gospel has been contaminated with personal opinions. Some of you remember Tim's t-shirt. He wears these t-shirts up here every week, right? Last week said, give them the gospel, not your opinions, And I would add, not your opinion of what the gospel means. You need to know what it means, not your opinion of what it means. You have to know the gospel. God doesn't need you and I to make the gospel more or less attractive by adding to or taking away from it. He calls us to present Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And if we water down the gospel, yeah, they may want our Jesus, but what happens is that is not the Jesus of the Bible. We want them to accept the Jesus of the Bible. Becoming a Christian involves a lot more than saying a bunch of carefully crafted words. If the words don't reflect the Jesus of the Bible, if they don't reflect what's really taking place in our hearts, they become worthless. You see, when you believe in Jesus, he will change you. Sometimes it seems like we as Christians, we've lost our bearings when it comes to following Jesus. We think that maybe Jesus should be following us wherever we go into worldliness rather than us following him out of worldliness. Pastor John MacArthur puts it bluntly when he says, it seems evangelicals no longer believe that worldliness is a sin. So as important as it is that we give God our money and our time and all of our skills, it's, that's important that we give him, most important that we give him ourselves, everything, our bodies. Okay, so how do we do that? Verse 2 tells us, this is where the rubber meets the road. Now, we all, I think, have to agree that what Paul says here is true. We owe everything to God. The Word of God declares it to be that way. Logic even demands it. He says, This is your reasonable service. It only makes sense. Our hearts know it, but our minds cry out, Oh, how do I do that? How am I supposed to do that, Paul? What do you mean? What should we be doing? And Paul's response is twofold. In one single verse, he gives us both the do's and the don'ts. Look at verse 2, where he tells us what to do and what not to do. First, he writes us a don't list, and it is short. Do not be conformed to the world. As I studied that, I thought, I wonder what that meant to the Roman church. How are they not to be conformed to the world? What did that mean to them? What was the world like in their their day? What challenges did they face? And then it dawned on me, I really don't need to know that. it, It means exactly the same thing as it does for us today. No, they didn't have the electronic media and things like that to contend with like you and I do. And that is huge, by the way. But they did have unbelievers trying to draw them away from the faith. They did have the enemy of God and his host of demons fighting against them. They did have the world as Paul has described it in chapter 1 of Romans. The world that he warns us about is not the planet itself, it's people. People who do not know their Creator and don't want to know the Creator. People who create their own gods, who worship the creation rather than the Creator. People who live in sexual immorality. People who do things that should never be done and what they want is for you and I to join in with them and accept their values, accept their lifestyle as our standards. We contend with the same things that we do, don't they? If we don't, you're not looking around very much. One pastor wrote, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. I think that's a pretty good summary of what Paul has been trying to say say here by the world. So let me try and refine that into one sentence, what it means to not be conformed to the world. Not being conformed to the world means not accepting the values and standards and practices of unbelievers as ours not accepting or adopting the ungodly values and practices of unbelievers as our standards. That's the difference. Many years ago, a commentator named A.W. Pink wrote that the children of God have become infected with the spirit of the world. I think he's right. We've become experts at fudging, haven't we? We can figure out ways to do just about whatever we want to do that the world does, but we don't want to call it sin, do we? We think we can do whatever they do, and if anybody says anything about it, what do we do? That's legalism. You know what that tells somebody? It tells them two things, that we don't understand what legalism means, and it tells them we don't understand what holiness means. Obeying God is not legalism. Obeying God is a pleasing thing. It's a good thing. It's what He calls us to do. It's not legalism. You're not trying to win your salvation. You do it because you are saved. You cannot be saved by doing anything, but there's a lot of things we need to be doing because we are saved. We're to follow the standards that God sets, not society standards. It doesn't matter what brand of jeans you wear. God doesn't care about that. What matters is that to him is that we are fully clothed and we're in our right minds. It doesn't matter that you enjoy sports. Sports are not a problem. Paul apparently enjoys sports. He uses them as illustrations a lot. But they can be a problem if they take the place of God. When they're more important to you than church is. I have a friend who sends me posters, sometimes several times a day, good poignant, poignant posters, One of them a while back said, church should be our excuse for missing everything else. That's true. We should be willing to miss other things to go to church, not willing to miss church to go to other things. The problem is when we take our eyes off the prize of God in order to get the prize of man. Well, what are we to do then? What does he mean here? How are we to separate ourselves from the world? When pioneer missionary Hudson Taylor was traveling around China with one of his fellow missionaries, they were speaking to a group of people, and the priest of those people wanted them to meet a holy man. And, of course, they agreed. They wanted to know, what's a holy person look like? What's a holy man look like? And so they followed these priests into the recesses of their temple up to a wall, with an opening in it just large enough for a man's hand to fit through. And the priest pointed to that slot, and they said, Look in there, and you will see a holy man. One at a time, they looked, and then as their eyes adjusted to the darkness, they could see a man sitting there, silent, motionless, in a chamber, with no doors and no windows, And then to their horror, they realized that this man had willingly allowed himself to be walled off from the rest of the world. His only contact with the outside world was that small slot where he could get a little food, a little water, and a little light might pass through there. And there he sat day after day, year after year, unwashed, unkempt, seeing and hearing very little talking to no one, pursuing his salvation by separating himself from the world. Well, he was separated from the world, but he was not holy. The only thing that makes a person holy is the blood of Jesus Christ. Physical separation like that is not holiness. It's spiritual separation that God is concerned with. How do we separate ourselves in from the world so that we will not be being conformed to the world? So that we won't be accepting their values and their standards. Let's see what Paul has to say then in the next part of verse 2. Let's look at the do. He says, do be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Oh, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Renew my mind. Oh, Paul, by the way, how do we do that? How do I do that? It's just one thing to tell me to do it, but how do I do it? Now, Paul is mysteriously clear here when he tells us how we are to go about renewing our minds. And I say mysteriously clear because I believe he does give us the answer, but only if we think about it. He helps us to figure it out when he writes that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, and perfect will of God. Well, how do we prove the good, and acceptable, and perfect will of God? Now, that word prove there carries the idea of discerning or seeing. How do we see what is the good, and acceptable, and perfect will of God? Well, you know what? It doesn't come from out there anywhere. You can't leave this building and find it out there. You see some beauty and order in creation, but you're not going to find the perfect will of God out there. It doesn't come from within here anywhere, I can tell you that. And if you think you have it within you to find the perfect will of God without the the word, remember this. The The heart of man is deceitful above all things. You're deceiving yourselves. There's only one way that I know that we can personally know and prove the will of God. And what is it? By the word of God. The word of God. That's the only way. That's the only tool we possess. The written word of God, By me, the only means we possess is the spirit of God living inside of us and, and helping us to live it out. Guiding us and helping us, helping us to comprehend the word. The word. In other words, our minds are renewed as we prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God by the good and perfect and acceptable word of God. Well, how does that work? So this morning I want to offer you a four-step process for renewing your minds, steps that are really essential to becoming the living sacrifice. We're going to call them the four R's. I don't think I put that in your notes, but um, a little pressed for time this week. The process is the same no matter who you are, how old you are in the Lord. It doesn't matter. I recently read of an evangelist who asked, he was asked if he knew the secret of revival. And I really liked his answer. His response was basically this. He says, draw an imaginary circle around yourself. Step inside that circle if you're not in there already. And then, ask God to revive everything inside that circle. Okay? So you want to be revived? Pray that prayer. Draw an imaginary circle around yourself. Step inside. Pray for God to revive everything inside that circle. Because that is really where it begins, isn't it? We need to pray. We have to ask God to help us, or we're probably beating our heads against the wall. Step number one, after you've prayed, read the word, read the word. Some of these sound like redundancies as far as we hear it so often that we fail to contemplate what the importance is. Read the word, saturate yourself with the word of God. Read it over and over and over. I'm sure a lot of you read the Bible and even if you read as slow as I do, you could read it through in a year and 15 minutes a day. But we need to be reading it over and over and over. Go through it, start over. Go through it, start over. Saturate yourself with the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you lost your zeal for God? You know why? Fire needs fuel. This is your fuel. If you don't read the word, you're not going to be on fire for God we have to be Bible people read the word over and over and over it cleanses us, it guides us, it comforts us it warns us now if you don't need those things you could skip that step I guess we need to be reading the word if you don't understand the Bible that you're reading talk to the elders talk to Pastor Greg they'll help you find a Bible that you can understand because you need to be being fed by the word Never underestimate the importance of reading the word of God. It is God's voice speaking to us. If you want to know what he says, that's it. Secondly, step two then, reflect on the word. Now this is something a lot of us don't do very often. We read the word, we try to get through it. Okay, I've done that, now I can go on to what I really need to be doing in life. But we're supposed to be thinking about the word as we read it. And I've discovered in the last several years, I've discovered a whole bunch of new verses that were not in my Bible as I've read it over the years. I said, where did that verse come from? That wasn't there the last time I read it through. Where did that verse come from? Because maybe I'm thinking a little bit more. Thinking about it, that's what Christian meditation is. Thinking about what we're doing, reading here. Taking a verse or a passage of scripture and mulling it over in our minds and asking the Holy Spirit to help us to understand. And we know our lives can be busy. We know they can be confusing. We know we have difficult times. But God knows our hearts and he knows what we need, so we ask him to to speak to us through his word. So read the word. Think about what it means. That's Christian meditation. Never underestimate the value of reading the word. Never underestimate the value of reflecting on the word. Read, reflect. Thirdly, remember the word. Remember the word. You're going to hate this, aren't you? Memorization. Okay, I'm using that term very loosely. I'll try to explain what I mean there. We need to memorize the word. We need to know the word. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story here. I began memorizing when I was in my mid-20s. I just started walking with the Lord. I was attending a Bible study from Pastor Turkington from the Charleston Church, if any of you knew him. And we'd go to the Bible study every Thursday night. Now, it's important for you to understand something. Before that time, I was a... You can call me a hippie. That's what I was. I mean, I lived on the communes and I was into drugs and the new age thinking and all that kind of stuff. And my mind was really, really burnt out from drugs, from LSD. Now you know my whole story in a nutshell. Don't comment on that. So my mind was burnt out. I really couldn't think very clearly. You can ask a couple of people in this room and they'll tell you. In fact, one of them might tell you, I still don't think very clearly at times. Okay, So when I was picking up a friend for this Bible study, I was driving my old Volkswagen bus, wonderful bus, and I had 15 or 20 of these three-by-five cards with memory verses on them. And I said, Antoinette, that's the friend that I was taking to the Bible study that night, Antoinette, ask me one of these, any of them, and I could tell her any verse she asked me. And I was so excited to be able to do that, that I could actually quote back scriptures, that I could memorize after all that I'd been through. Then I went on to Bible school. Had to memorize there a little bit more, and and over the years, memory work has kind of become part of my life. You say, well, why do I need to do that? Why do I need to remember? Well, you know what? When you know the word, like that when you get it in your system like that it's a big help if you're standing in the grocery store line and you're tempted to grumble and complain it's a lot easier to know Philippians 2 14 and 15 in your head which says do not complain or grumble than it is to say oh I need my concordance now where is that at in here take your Bible and your concordance to the grocery store and stand in line (laughs) know it in your heart It's pretty hard to be afraid when you know Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Memory work will help you with your prayer life. You can pray what's in the scriptures. Pray the scriptures. It will help you with your praise life because there's a lot of psalms that we can just praise the Lord. So I love memory work, and I think every Christian should be doing that. And you now how you do it is a little bit different here. Remembering the word of God is important. I personally like word-for-word memorization. But I'm not convinced that it's the only way or even the best way. What God wants is for you to remember his instructions. That's the important thing. And if you were just to remember Okay, I know that's in chapter 14 of Romans. I don't think God is real concerned that you know the verse number. I think he wants you to know where to find what you need when you need it. That's called remembering the word. So choose some verses, choose chapters, choose even books that challenge you and excite you. Never, ever underestimate the treasure of having God's word hidden in your heart. Remember the word. And I've told you my story in part because, you know what? If I can memorize, I guarantee you can memorize. Guaranteed. Okay, so we have three R's so far, right? Read, reflect, remember. Now, as important as these three R's are, they're pretty much useless apart from our, apart from our last R, as far as being our minds being renewed. You see, anybody can read the Bible. You don't have to be a Christian to read and understand, at least in part, the Bible. Anybody can reflect on what they read. Even the cults pull verses out and they insist that their followers accept their distorted interpretations. And anyone can remember the Bible. Memorization is an art, it's a blessing, but it's not limited to people of the faith. Now, if you're here this morning and you have not been born again, you can read the Bible and you can discover that it clearly teaches that God came to the earth through the virgin birth. You can probably grasp that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he was put to death for the sins of the world, not just everybody else's, but yours and mine. It's really clear. You can read about his virgin birth, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection from the dead, his amazing ascension into heaven, and his promise to return someday and judge the world, sending some people to eternal hell and others to a new heaven and a new earth, his kingdom. But you can't go any further than that until you're born again. You cannot experience renewal of the mind until you have a renewed heart. You have to do more than read, reflect, and remember you have to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So that's the fourth R for you if you're an unbeliever here this morning. And for the rest of us who are children of God, who have been redeemed, just as a non-Christian cannot have their minds renewed until they're born again, you and I cannot really have our minds renewed without taking the final step. The fourth R tells us the final and most important step to renew in our minds. And by comparison, I would say that what we've seen so far, reading, reflecting, remembering, is kind of like what happens as we're preparing a big dinner, like at Thanksgiving or Christmas. We think about it. What do we do? We think about it. We smell it. Our mouths begin to water. But we haven't eaten it yet, have we? We know how good it looks. We know how good it smells but we haven't eaten it yet. And that's where the proof is, isn't it? Responding. And that's the fourth R for you and I as believers is respond. Respond to the word of God. Our minds are not renewed simply by reading the word as essential as it is to read. They're not renewed by simply reflecting on it or even remembering the word, although those are critical steps. Our minds are transformed as we respond As we live it out, as we do what it says, as we apply the truth, it transforms the way that we think. It transforms how we see what is good, how we discern just how good God's will really is. It changes the way that we speak. It changes the way that we act. It changes our values, our morals, our manners, our lifestyles. As our minds are renewed, we will understand more and more the things of God. And how God is working out His sovereign plan in our own individual lives, in the church, and in the world around us. And that's the critical step for us respond. Read, reflect, remember, respond. Remember our man in the cave? He gave up everything in order to attain holiness, a vain effort. Because of the work of Jesus, you and I do not need to live and die in a cave. We can know that we are saved when our sins are forgiven. Remember the elderly lady who stood up and offered God the rest of her life? Because of the work of Jesus, we don't even have to stand up like our elderly lady friend. He has given us eternal life and he wants us to see just how good he truly is. And the way that we can see how good he truly is is by being transformed by his word. Are we willing to step inside that imaginary circle and ask, ask God to revive everything inside that circle? I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to god which is your reasonable service and be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of god let's pray father we would know nothing of this message your message to us if you had not given us your word We would understand even less if we had your word and didn't have your spirit. Lord, we're so thankful for the message that you've given us, for the Holy Spirit that you've given us. We're so thankful for you sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and to redeem us. We ask now that you help each one of us here this morning to step inside that circle, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, and devote ourselves to you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us at Hauser Community Church Online. Check back next week for the next unpacking of the Word of God. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about the message or for pastor at area code 541-756-2591 or email us at pray at hauserchurch.org. Again, that's P-R-A-Y at h a u s e r c h u r c h. Dot org. Our address is 69411 Wildwood Road, North Bend, Oregon, 97459. Remember, if you're seeking the truth, it will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ.